curly beard is leading his demons along his pack of tin, and Mange Dog has found a lingerer, someone who is waiting a little too long on the shore of the pitch to get back under it, and he's been pulled out by the tarred hair. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in the fifth of the evil pouches of fraud, the fifth of ten. We are in the large landscape of the eighth circle of hell, the circles of fraud, that which humans do to each other, that most disgusting thing that humans do to each other, or I should say that almost or next to most disgusting thing that humans do to each other. We're not to treachery quite yet, but still and nonetheless, we're amongst the circles of fraud. We're slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're in Canto 22, lines 40 through 75, amongst the Barretters, people who sell political office, who take bribes, who get kickbacks, the political grifters, something in the modern world we're all too familiar with, something that in Dante represents one of the largest single moments of any moment in all of comedy. Certainly the longest single moment he spends with any one sin and punishment, and in fact rivals some of the big sequences where he sticks around in Paradiso and Purgatorio for long discussions. Inferno, Canto 22, lines 40 through 75. Oh, red face, make sure you sink your claws into him and tear the skin off, shouted the whole crew of evildoers at once. And I, my master, find out if you can who this is, this wretch who has fallen into his enemy's hands. My leader pulled up alongside him and asked where he was from. He said, I was born in the kingdom of Navarre. My mother put me into service for a lord. If she could see me with a drunkard who wasted himself in his earthly possessions, then I went into the family of good King Tibal, where I figured out how to get in on the take, for which my accounts are squared up in this cauldron. And Big Pig, who had tusks like a wild boar's that stuck out from either side of his mouth, made the Kai feel how one of them could gash. The mouse had fallen among grievous cats. But Curlybeard held the guy tight with his arms and said, Stand back while I pin him in. Then he turned to face my master and said, Ask away if you want to talk some more to find out about him before any of these brutes disembowel him. Thus, my leader. Okay, tell us, is there any Italian among the sinners under this pitch? And he, I just left one a moment ago. Who came from around those parts? How I wish I were still covered up with him so I would be trembling at these claws and hooks. And Lovecrack said, We'd hung out long enough. He lanced the guy's arm with a grappling hook and gave a big tug, ripping a hunk of flesh out of him. Little Big Dragon also wanted to hook him on down below through the legs. But at this, their decurion whipped around on them real fast with an ugly grimace.
a lot of violence and a lot more to come as they begin to rip apart this barrister who has been caught lingering a little too long on the side of the boiling pitch. I want to talk here about Dante in the passage. I want to talk about Virgil in the passage. I want to talk about the guy who was born in the kingdom of Navarre. I want to talk about the demons. And finally, I want to end with thoughts on the escalating violence of this evil pouch. So let's get going and talk about Dante. You'll notice it starts off with all the demons calling out to Rubicante, to Redface, to, you know, sink his claws into the guy and tear the skin off of him. That's what they all want, is to flay the guy. But Dante steps into the middle of what's about to be a maelstrom of violence. Remember last time, dolphins arch their backs in front of ships to warn mariners about approaching storms so they can save their ships. And I said, a storm is definitely brewing. Well, here it is. And into the middle of this storm, I mean, just think about this phrase. Make sure you sink your claws into him and tear the skin off of him. Into this phrase, Dante, our pilgrim, rather blithely at least or somehow rather straightforwardly says my master find out if you can who this is this wretch who has fallen into his enemy's hands it's hard first of all not to hear Dante the poet's biography here behind Dante the pilgrim's question that is Somebody like Dante the Poet who fell into his enemy's hands and thus had to go into exile. But more than that, I'd just like to point out to you that Dante's curiosity is larger than his fear. This strikes me as very important. If you remember, Dante the Pilgrim has already expressed his fear. You know, look at their eyebrows. Look at how they're snarling. And Virgil's kind of said, I don't want you to be so afraid. Remember that bit from a couple episodes ago? And here we see his curiosity in full-blown flower, just opening out. Find out who this is, this wretch who has fallen into his enemy's hands. This, it strikes me, is the right motivation. Let me explain that. Curiosity being larger than fear is the proper writerly stance. If you're going to write a novel, a memoir, a short story, a poem, if you're going to write, if you're going to translate Dante, whatever you're going to do creatively, you're going to, I don't know, you're going to paint a painting, you're going to sculpt something. Here's the problem, and you know it as well as I do. A creative can be destroyed by fear. Any creative artist, writer, painter, sculptor, even translators, even architects, anybody can be destroyed by fear who lives in a creative field. And the only order that you can exist in is your curiosity has to be bigger than your fear. That's the way you're going to get that novel written. That's the way you're going to get that poem translated. That's the way you're going to get that building built. Your curiosity has to be larger than your fear. And particularly, this is important, in the face of such folly. folly. Remember back to Canto 2. Dante the Pilgrim, when he quakes at the thought of taking this journey with Virgil the hard way, down through Inferno and on across the known universe. When he quakes at the thought of that, he says, this thing, whole thing could just be folly. And we talked back there about writerly fears, 
overreach, doing something that's bigger than I am. How, oh my God, I, I, what? I, who am I to write, I don't know, who am I to write The Sound of the Fury or who am I to write Mrs. Dalloway or who am I to write Ulysses doing something that's so much bigger than you are. But great writers like Faulkner, like Wolf, like Joyce and like Dante know how to put their curiosity in front of their fear and thereby dissolve the problems of folly, the problem of feeling that the piece of writing that you're doing is just mad overreach. And here, in the face of brutal, insane violence, rip his skin off of him, red face, in the face of that, the pilgrim seems I don't want to say blasé, but rather straightforward and wants to know, hey, find out who this is because I'm going to need it for my piece of writing because I'm just curious because this is why I'm on this journey to figure all this out. Remember, he says, as they were led along in the last passage by the Ten Demons, he kept his attention right on the boiling pitch to try to figure this whole thing out of what's going on in this pouch. That's the writerly answer. Always make sure your curiosity is in front of your fear. That's Dante. Let's talk about Virgil. Virgil in the passage is much more difficult. Dante says, find out if you can who this is, this wretch who has fallen into his enemy's hands. And so my leader, that is Virgil, pulled up alongside him and asked where he was from. You'll notice that the one thing Virgil doesn't get is who this is. The guy does say a little bit, I was born in the kingdom of Navarre. We'll talk about that in a minute. He talks a little bit about his mom, talks about being in the court of good King Tebow. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get to talking about the guy. But you'll notice we don't get a name and we don't really get to find out much except a kind of general outline of the figure. So if Dante wants to know who is this, Virgil doesn't actually get the answer. And you'll notice later in the passage, Virgil asks another question. He says, tell us, is there any Italian among the sinners under this pitch? And you'll notice that at that point, again, the guy says, I just left one a moment ago who came from around those parts and how I wish I was still covered up with him. So the guy's answer is not exactly what Virgil wants. I mean, Dante is clearly wanting somebody amongst the barriters to step out and say, hey, dude, I'm from Florence, or I'm from Siena, or I'm from a town you know. Dante's looking, clearly in the passage, for somebody from his own landscape, and he's not getting it. He's getting vague answers. This guy says, oh yeah, I left somebody from around those parts. Navarre is nowhere close to Italy. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the guy doesn't give his name. He doesn't seem to come from anywhere that Dante would know of. I mean, I, I think that import here is that the pilgrim wants somebody, I don't know, from Florence's ruling council to step up and be the center of baratry, and it's not, which is all an intriguing irony. It's also something that Virgil seems to not be able to do. He doesn't seem all that effective in this passage, and it's laid on thick with my master and my leader and my leader. I mean, it's being really laid on thick that Virgil should be in control, and yet it seems like his questions don't come up with full answers. I think that's going to be important for the total arc 
of what happens amongst the Barretters here in the fifth of the Malabolgia. But let's talk about the guy who got pulled out of the pitch. So Virgil pulls up alongside of him and asks him where he's from. All right, fair enough. And the guy does answer that. I was born in the kingdom of Navarre. Navarre is a small kingdom in Dante's day in the Pyrenees. It straddles the Pyrenees on what is now the French-Spanish border. It's in the south of France, the southwest of France, It was partially divided in the early 1500s. The southern sections of it were brought into the kingdom of Castile in 1515, and the northern parts of it were absorbed into France in 1598. Those dates are way later than this passage, this events in 1300. Dante wouldn't know any of that. Instead, it's a small kingdom in the Pyrenees. We would now say Basque country. And there's not a lot to be said about that for Dante. Some of the early commentators make a great deal about Navarre and its position toward Florence and um, its refusal to help in the Florentine Wars. I don't know. It's a long way away from Florence. You'd have to march your people clear across Provence and on into northern Italy and then down into Tuscany. I don't even know that the people of Navarre would know anything about the Florentine troubles. Maybe. I take it. This guy's a foreigner. He's from a faraway place, Navarre. We've been kind of running around the Italian towns for a while. Remember, Bologna, Mantua, Arezzo. We've been seeing various Italian cities. And now we have just a guy from a long way away who says, my mother put me into service for a lord after she'd conceived me with a drunkard who wasted himself in his earthly possessions. You should know that the word he uses for after she conceived me is generally a word used for males, not males conceived, but what happens what males do in the sex act and that it's associated here with a woman is a little weird. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. When he kind of says, if I translate it directly into English, is after she generated me. And that, that verb generated is generally used to explain the male's place in the sex act, not the female's. I'm not quite sure what to make of that, that there's a cross-gendered weirdness here. Some people I've read claim that we should doubt him from this moment because he's not using language properly, and so he might not be telling anything about himself, and maybe we should not be tricked into even thinking he's from the kingdom of Navarre. After all, he must be speaking something like Florentine, and yet nobody from Navarre would speak Florentine. Again, some people claim that this guy's pulling your leg from the very beginning, that he's grifting, (laughs) or he's fraudulently acting towards you. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I don't buy that it's just a weird locution. Maybe Dante uses it as a locution to claim that this guy doesn't really speak Florentine or doesn't know the nuances of Florentine. Maybe that's a reality claim in the passage. It is a little bit of a trip 
as a little bit of a place where you can stub your toe as you walk through the passage. But I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't worry about it too much because it just seems like here's this poor guy. He's basically a bastard. He's born, uh, you know, to a, to a guy that basically uh, wastes himself in his earthly positions, the possessions. There may be a suicide idea there, uh, especially about both uh, economic and personal suicide, perhaps. It's nonetheless, a drunkard, a boozer. I mean, it's not from good circumstances. And he gets put out for service, right? And he went into the family uh, of good after that, after the, his first service to the Lord. Then from there, he's kind of promoted up to good King Tebow, who he's talking about is Tebow II, or we would say in English, Theobald II, who was King of Navarre from 1253 to 1270. Interestingly, and this plays out for Dante a little bit. Interestingly, Thibault II or Theobald II is the first Navarian monarch to establish a divine right to the kingdom of Navarre. He gets Pope Alexander IV to declare his accession to the throne as divinely um, sanctioned, as providential in 1257. So this guy is claiming a divine right to a throne. If you know anything about politics, you know that Dante wants to divide the state from the church. There may be a commentary here about that, that there is undue church influence. And this Barrator, of course, thinks good King Thibault is good because he has essentially gotten in on the take of Pope Alexander IV and gotten Pope Alexander IV to declare him providentially the King of Navarre. Maybe it's pushing it in every direction. Not sure. But he gets into the family of good King Thibault and he says, there I've figured out how to get on the take. And we should note, and it's important to note, that Baratree is mostly, not totally, you can think of modern examples, is mostly the sin of underlings. It's how you work your way up the ladder by giving bribes, by by buying offices, by getting yourself higher up. Yes, somebody up higher from you must take the money from you. But baratry is particularly besetting amongst underlings who fight in court for positions and try to buy positions or get in on the take or get in on the bribe. It is, of course, of course, the fault of those in control, but it is a really besetting problem of those who are below the top rungs of the ladder and are trying to work their way up. And he claims his accounts are squared up in this in this cauldron, in this hot pit. So who is this guy? The early commentators all say that his name is Ciampolo, or if we were to give him, since Navarre is from is in France or a part of France and northern Spain. If we were to give him his French name, Ciampolo is Jean-Paul. So they're all claiming that Jean-Paul or Ciampolo is this guy pulled out of the muck. You know what? I don't want it. Because while they may claim that, he's not named in the text. And there is not enough information here to actually name somebody. There's just not. With other um, remember paraphrastic phrasings, other walkings around a main point, we do get enough information that we can nail the figure down. We can figure out exactly who is being talked about or who is talking here. This figure, this is too little to go on. Uh, somebody from Navarre who was born out, probably out of wedlock, who 
was a servant who got into a court position, who got on the table. There's not enough information there to make him anybody, and I think it's important that he remain nameless, thus highlighting Virgil's failure. I think it's really important that we can't nail him down. The other, the early commentators are all crazed to find out exactly who Chiampolo is and who this character was. Some of them even invent biographical details that are impossible for him because they want to nail every sinner down. Maybe there's a way that this slippery grifter can't be nailed down. Gives you just enough information to make you curious, but no more. Okay, so enough about Dante and Virgil and Jean-Paul or Chiampolo or, <laughs> as I prefer it, the unnamed barrator pulled out of the muck by Mange Dog. And now let's talk for just a minute about the demons. You remember that they've all been named back in Canto 21, and they're all coming back forward here again. Rubicante at the front of this passage, red face. Then we find out that big pig who we had found out was tusked before. Now we find out he's got wild boar tusks sticking out of either side of his mouth. Big pig. Yeah, jabs this guy, gashes him open. Curly Beard is the guy who kind of is in charge of the pack. He's the Decurion, the Roman leader of ten soldiers. So he, Curly Beard is holding this guy. And clearly, Curly Beard wants this guy to talk to our Pilgrim and Virgil. Why does Curly Beard want him to talk? It's unclear. Is Curly Beard trying to placate our pilgrim? If so, is Curly Beard trying to gain the pilgrim's confidence so that ultimately they can hook their claws into some real flesh? Maybe. Somehow Curly Beard wants to hold this sinner that Mange Dog has pulled out of the mock and hold him in place so Virgil and Dante can carry on with him. And he keeps trying to keep the other demons in line. You'll notice that again, Lovecrack, as I translated it, is impatient. And so he pulls the hook, puts the hook in the guy and rips out a hunk of flesh. Don't ask me how that happens with a soul. All I know is the violence is escalating. We'll get to that in a bit. And then little big dragon, I mean, the, the implication is here is wants to hook him with a grappling hook between the legs in the crotch. And at that point, Curly Beard whips around and gives them all a really mean look to say, cut it out. So let's talk about these demons because we've seen them before and here they're being named again. Here's what I'd like to point out to you. Their names, we've talked about it before, uh, their names are difficult to translate. We had a whole long bit in an episode, what, two ago, that, you know, we talked about how translation is difficult for their names, all that kind of stuff. I want to bring up a further point about that. These demons, their names, would be acts of translation even for Florentine readers, even for medieval Florentines, these names would have to be puzzled out and pulled apart and put into more standard dialect, which only further heightens the meta-literary foundations 
of this text by having names that even medieval Florentines would have to puzzle out and translate in the same way I'm having to bring them into English. This is causing the text to kind of take on meta or overarching or uh, self-referential functionality. That's getting back to big literary talk, but I think it's important to see it. This text is so much about, well, this text. Let's look at what Virgil says right before we get to the problem of the escalating violence. Virgil says, tell us, is there any Italian among the sinners under the pitch? And the guy says, yeah, I just left one a moment ago who came from around those parts. I wish I were covered up with him so it would be trembling at all these claws and hooks. The word Virgil uses for Italian is Latino, and it is actually rather shocking. Remember, we've been having our tour of the towns of Italy, Bologna, Mantua, Arezzo. We've been kind of running around the various towns in central Italy in the pouches of fraud. And that suddenly here, there's a reference to Latino, that is Italians, as if it's a geographical landscape. Remember, there's no such thing as Italy. And yet, Virgil's making a reference here to a larger geographical entity, Italy. And he's calling the citizens of that peninsula Latino or Latins. But we would now say Italians. Interesting that here, amongst the barriters, this question comes up of a larger conflict political configuration beyond just the individual towns being named. But here on political grift, we suddenly have a question about people from the peninsula as a whole. It jumps out of the text just a bit. Virgil could say, is there any Florentine down there? Or is there anyone from central Italy? Or is there anyone from northern Italy? Or anyone from Verona? Or anyone from any place that Dante the Pilgrim might be? Instead, Virgil names an entire geographical region. Now, I don't think I can push this to nationalism the way some critics do, but I can say that there's clearly something being said about the connection of all the groups, the political groups, on the Italian peninsula with Baratry. And they're all, they're all on the take. An interesting place to suddenly bring up such a word, Latino, it jumps out of comedy. All right, let's talk about the escalating violence in this passage. Starts out, red face, sink your claws into the guy, the, you know, um, curly beard, the leader, our decurion, our leader of our squadron has got the guy pinned. The big pig is tusking him and gashing him open at the end. The love crack lances the guy's arm and yanks out a hunk of flesh. Little big dragon wants to get him in the crotch with a hook. I mean, this is really all escalating and escalating violence. What can we make of this? Well, let me offer you several suggestions and you can come to some conclusions on your own. One, perhaps it's funny. 
I don't think it's funny. But maybe in a medieval context, it's funny. Maybe if you're the kind of person who laughs at the Three Stooges or laughs at slapstick comedy, it's funny. It's starting to seem a little raw to be funny. It was funny back with the trumpet and the call and the setting off of the squadron. It's getting less funny as it goes forward. But there are many, many people who will claim that what happens here is just basically low slapstick physical bodily comedy. And so somebody gets ripped apart. That is one way to look at it. Another way to see this sequence is, how do I say this? Dante is testing the limits of our compassion. Remember Filippo Argenti up in Sticks, and remember how Filippo Argenti tries to get in the boat with them up in Sticks with Phlegas and Virgil and Dante, and uh, and they basically push him off the edge of the boat, and Dante wishes that he could seem ripped apart, and sure enough, he is ripped apart, and Virgil hugs Dante for this act of barbarism toward one of the sinners. We talked about that up there, that one of the things that happens over the course of Inferno is that you are being told, who are you to question the judgment of God? And our pilgrim starts out as somebody who faints at Francesca, who faints at Karen, but is getting more and more resilient to the violence. I don't think it's a modern problem of desensitizing. Rather, I think it's a question of learning that this is the judgment of God, and who are you to question it? It may look rough, and it may look barbaric, and it may look special, but who are you to question the fundamental justice of God? Now, listen, let me just say, I don't believe that. I not in that. I'm saying that that is something that may be happening in the poem. And so, in this very barbaric episode in the fifth of the evil pouches of fraud, Dante, the poet, may be testing the waters and seeing if you're learning. Because, in the end, comedy is about your conversion, not just the pilgrims. The poem is written so that you understand the journey that the pilgrim is going to go through to become the kind of person who can see God, and you are expected to make that conversion process with him. Let me again say, I'm not holding this as any kind of value. I'm telling you that I think it's happening in the poem, and maybe we can see this whole episode as one in which Dante is kind of testing you. Okay, are you still feeling bad for the damned? Don't feel bad for the damned. A, they put themselves here, and B, this is the judgment of God. So is your conversion happening consequentially and sequentially with the pilgrim's conversion? Okay, that's one. That's the second way to look at it. Here's the third. Is this, uh, how do I say, becoming more contemporary for Dante's own readers in his own day? Dante lived in an incredibly violent society. Surely Dante had seen political prisoners and prisoners of all kind held and tortured until they gave a confession. Surely this is a common street activity in Dante's day in the very violent world that Dante lived in. And so these sequences 
are Baradry are more contemporary than other bits, let's say other more esoteric bits of Inferno. The discussion of Fortune's Wheel or the rolling around of the rocks of the avaricious and the prodigal, you know, I mean, it's not exactly all that contemporary to Dante's moment, except so many in the church were indeed on the take or were avaricious or prodigal and either acquired too much money or spent too much money. Yeah, sure enough. Yet these street sequences seem more contemporary for Dante's readers. And is that part of the point? is to make sure that the poem is connecting with the violent medieval society that Dante himself is a part of. Of course, he wouldn't call it medieval, but you know what I mean, that it's connecting to the very world he's a part of. Or here's a fourth way to look at it. We must not forget that Curly Beard, who's holding this guy, you know, by his arm, he's holding, but got his arms around this guy and holding him in place so that Virgil and Dante can question him. We must not forget that Curly Beard is exercising control over the other demons or at least partial control over them is that what the passage is ultimately also about because curly beard seems to say you know like hurry up because if you gotta hurry up and talk to this guy ask away he says if you want to talk some more and find out about him before one of these brutes disembowels him Interesting, then, that the violence that is inherent is at least partially held in place by the decurion. And is this a comment on society as a whole, that while you can't hold the violence to nil, you can at least partially control it to get what you need out of the situation? If that's the case, then it is a larger political commentary about social fabric order. All of those are ways to think about the escalating violence in the passage. I don't know that I'm going to come down anywhere, except that I don't think it's funny. But listen, there are hundreds of commentators who find these scenes very, for lack of a better word, comic. And it's going to get worse from here. In fact, the next tercet, the next three lines, are one of the most chilling of all of Inferno, at least for me. So stick around. Subscribe to this podcast. Rate it. Give it a comment. That would be brilliant. <laughs> Just say thanks in a comment. That would be brilliant. Yeah, I really appreciate that for the algorithm. I'm glad you're on this journey with me. Find me on Twitter, at Mark Scarborough. Look me up on my own website, MarkScarborough.com. You can find me there. A lot of people mostly now find me on Twitter and we connect there. People are at all stages of this journey. Even if you're getting here, let's say a year after this episode first dropped, don't worry. We're still on the journey. We're just kind of far ahead of you and we can still connect over this episode. Otherwise, come back next time. It's going to get worse. Oh, poor Virgil. Pour this grifter out of the pit. Oh my gosh, they're all in for so much trouble. Coming up on the next episode of Walking with Dante, I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon.